The title for today's sermon is Humble Me, Lord, and is taken from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. I trust it's well with your soul this morning. Those words were penned by Horatio Spafford as his ship steamed over the spot where his wife and three daughters sank in another ship having been hit by an iceberg and died. He wrote those songs saying, It is well with his soul. And if you were with us on our trip to Israel last year, we saw Horatio Spafford's grave on Mount Zion behind the school in which we attended, um, the Jerusalem University College. So, very meaningful words. Thank you for singing, Andy and Joe. Appreciate that. Would you bow for me as we ask God to direct us in our study of his word? Father, we are so grateful this morning that we can come here out of our own free will to listen to the preaching of the word, to have it affect our hearts and minds. Help us, Lord, to set our minds on heavenly things, to push out all that is worldly, the sounds of sirens and all those things that can distract us from hearing your voice. Help us, Lord, to have ears to hear and hearts to obey. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. While doing research on the web, I came across a site called uh, Love Our Children USA. Called Love Our Children USA. This site states that its intent is to raise public awareness and be an advocate for the promotion of self-esteem in children. Now, I hope you got that. To raise public awareness and to be an advocate. Those are code words for brainwashing. The website states, and I quote from it, good self-esteem is essential in a child's development. It's the foundation of everything they do and everything they are. It is the foundation of their future. Helping your child grow up with strong self-esteem is one of the most important things you can do as a parent. You're the primary influence on how your child feels about his or herself and their self-esteem. Who they are is a mirror of you. It's imperative that your child feels valuable and has strong self-esteem. Kids with high self-esteem have an easier time throughout life. By providing a positive reflection doesn't mean you allow your children to run the family. It means that you build positive self-esteem. Well, as I sat in my office and I thought about that for a few minutes... I was reminded of a skit that I saw a number of years ago. Maybe you saw it too on SNL. Maybe you'll remember this. I deserve good things. I am entitled to my share of happiness. I refuse to beat myself up. I am an attractive person. I am fun to be with. Daily Affirmation with Stuart Smalley. Stuart Smalley is a caring nurturer, a member of several 12-step programs, but not a licensed therapist. I'm going to do a terrific show today, and I'm going to help people because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Hello, 
I'm Stuart Smalley. Well, I'm still receiving some negative reaction from my show about Pee Wee Herman entitled There But For The Grace Of God <laughs> Go I. And I have to admit it was not my best show, but that's okay. I have to give myself permission to do a bad show every now and then. Okay, now for those of you who watch the show regularly, you know that I, I don't have guests. I always do the show alone, and that's okay. <laughs> but yesterday, my producer said, Stuart, I can get you a guest that you would be insane not to have on the show. So I decided to take a risk, and in life you have to take risks. And today we have a guest. And his name is Michael J. I'll protect your anonymity. <laughs> Michael is a basketball player for a professional basketball team. Well, that's very good, Michael. You should be very proud of that. Well, thank you, Stuart. I am. Well, good for you. Good for you. Uh, Michael, I know there must be a lot of pressure for you to play very well. And I can imagine that a night before a game, you must lie awake thinking, I'm not good enough, uh, everybody's better than me, I'm not going to score any points, I have no business playing this game. Well, not really. Michael, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. Well, I do sometimes get a little nervous before important basketball games. I thought so. And that's... Okay. You're not alone. Believe me, I know what it's like laying there awake, all those tapes rolling. I'm a fraud. Tomorrow I'm going to be exposed for what I am, a big imposter. I just want to curl up and lay in bed all day and eat Fig Newton. Well, something like that. Right. Well, Michael, those negative thoughts are your critical inner voice saying those things to you, and I want to replace those negative thoughts with something positive, a daily affirmation. Affirmation? Yes. Now look in the mirror. Come on. Don't look at me. Only you can help you. That's it. Say, hello, Michael. Hello, Michael. I don't have to be a great basketball player. I don't have to be a great basketball player. I don't have to dribble the ball fast or throw the ball into the basket. I don't have to dribble the ball fast or throw the ball in the basket. Because all I have to do is be the best Michael I can be. All I have to do is be the best Michael I can be. Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Now, now don't you feel better? Well, I never really felt bad. <laughs> no, it's true. Stuart, I guess... Pretty much of the time, I'm, I'm a very happy person. I mean, I'm a blessed person. God gave me the talent to play basketball, and I have been able to spread some of that talent and some of that 
good feeling to, uh, towards everybody and inspired other people and helped people achieve their dreams. I am just a fool. <laughs> I, I don't know what I'm doing. They're going to cancel the show. <laughs> I'm going to die homeless and penniless. I'm 20 pounds overweight, and no one will ever love me. Stuart, that, that's just not true. I think what you're saying in your show can be very helpful to people. You think so? Yes, definitely. I just don't think it helps beating yourself up that way. You're right. It's just thinking, thinking. And after all, this show is your dream. It's a good dream. And you deserve to have dreams come true. Feel better? Would you like a hug? Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Stuart. You know what? I think this is the best show I've ever done. And you know what? I deserve it because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Now, if you really understand the liberal mindset, there's no room for exceptionalism like the likes of Michael Jordan. This illustrates the mindset of the lost in our society. People are taught to lie about themselves and who they really are. But the Bible teaches us that we aren't good enough, that we're not smart enough, and that most people really don't like us because we are sinners. So the world busies itself trying to cover up that truth about the nature of mankind. But for us to understand who God is, we must have an accurate understanding of who we are. So let me be straight and forward with you, up front, if you will. You are not a nice person. You are not a good guy. We don't wear white hats because according to the scriptures, we are terrible sinners, estranged from God. We are alienated from the Holy One by our sin. And the end of our days will be the lake of fire, unless something miraculously transpires. This morning, we turn to the book of Luke, chapter 18, and the text that we will look at is connected to the previous text by the fact that it is a parable and that Jesus references prayer within it. That said, these parables really have not got much in common, except they logically help explain the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ in greater detail. This text has been placed here in this point in Luke by the Holy Spirit in order for the disciples to understand the nature of faithfulness. This has direct application to those who will be on earth prior to the return of the Son of Man in his glorious appearing. This parable will be followed directly by three more small vignettes about what it means to possess the faith. The faith. Especially faith in difficult times. Well, Now let me begin with a, a caveat about this text. This parable is not... This parable is not about prayer, despite what many other expositors have suggested. 
In this section, Jesus has been teaching on the core values of discipleship. And you'll recall he alluded to those core values as being thankfulness, being ready for his appearing. And now he teaches us the core value of humility. Humility. So then, as we examine this parable this morning, please understand it as a parable of contrasts rather than comparisons. This par- in this parable, Jesus teaches his disciple the core value of humility by contrasting false justification by works with true justification through the faith. Well, with that said, as our introduction, would you turn with me to Luke 18, and we will pick up in verse 9. You can find this text on page 1046 of our Pew Bibles. We examine this text, which is, I like to call it, the tale of the legalist and the IRS agent. (coughs) The legalist and the IRS agent. Now, unlike most of Jesus' parable, we are given the reason for his telling it right up front as he begins to share. We find this explanation or the introduction of the parable in verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. It's obvious that Jesus is sharing with his disciples this story about not trusting in one's own righteousness. Why not? Because it only leads to a distorted view of the world and of people in the world, a distorted view of self and a distorted view of others. When human beings compare themselves to other people, we often find others detestable. So the question is, why do some men trust in themselves for righteousness? Let's explore that. And why does this trust in self always lead to the contempt for other human beings? In my 30 years of serving in the church of God, I believe I have discovered several reasons for this. First, such a person who trusts in his own righteousness begins to believe that he is smarter than everyone else. These self-righteous people believe that they are smarter than the pastor, smarter than the elders, smarter than all authority, and even smarter than God. They become terribly problematic if they are within your church for such a self-righteous person begins to challenge the authority that God has placed in their life, just as we will see in this parable. Now, the second attitude I've detected over my 30 years in ministry, that such self-righteous individuals begin to think they are better than other people. The self-righteous individual holds himself in high esteem above everyone else. This can be for various reasons. Sometimes it's connected to their birth, their nationality, their heredity, or their experience in life. Thirdly, the self-righteous person thinks of himself more highly because of what others may say about him. He begins to believe his own press, if you will. He starts thinking that I am better than others because so-and-so says so. This leads him to look down on others and giving them less worth than he should. Now, I've only begun to scratch the surface on, a, on why a person might trust in his own self-righteousness. There are many other reasons for it I have not articulated. But Jesus states here clearly that the self-righteous man justifies himself in the eyes of other men. 
They do so because it gives them a false confidence in their own works. In this parable, Jesus will contrast two men who are entering into the temple to pray. Looking at verse 10, we read that that two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. I'm sure you're familiar with this story. Probably heard it many times. But in it, Jesus contrasts the character of these two men. He's not comparing them, he's contrasting them. And their further identities, as far as name or employment or whatever it is that they do, is not important. So he describes them to us. One is being a Pharisee and the other is being a tax collector. The Pharisee is, of course, a very religious man who comes to pray at the temple in Jerusalem. And since the temple was on Mount Zion, anyone who went to the temple went up, even from any place in Jerusalem. You must go up the mountain. So this man goes up to pray. Now he's known for keeping the law of Moses rigidly. He belongs to a religious sect of the Jews that not only defines the requirements as laid down by in the law of Moses, commenting on them, but they also define how others are to obey it. This man believed himself to be the perfect example of works righteousness. He kept the law perfectly. You see, Pharisees saw themselves as standing head and shoulders above everyone else, so they naturally scorned those on the rungs below them. Well, he comes to pray, the text says. It must have been one of the three prescribed times of day for Jews to to pray, 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m. And since he was a devout Jew that did all that the law required and beyond that, he was probably there at all three opportunities each and every day. Any prayer that was offered up at the temple site was considered to be more efficacious than any others because of the close proximity of the human being to the presence of God as seen in the Holy of Holies in the temple. That's why Jewish men still go this day to the Western Wall to pray. And if you go to the Western Wall, there's a sign on it that says the Holy of Holies was directly beyond this point. So, You can see in the pictures behind me uh, of our trip last year uh, where we went to pray at the Holies of Holies. That's me and one of our missionaries, um, Mr. Mann, Bill Mann, walking towards it. And we're putting our hand on the wall there and praying with all the other Jewish men. And the Holies of Holies would have been just beyond that point. But it's hard for us to understand what the phrase... Pharisee would have conjured up in the mind of the Jewish people. They would have reacted far differently than we would in the church today because they had an instant respect for this man. They knew him to be religious. They knew him to want to keep the law perfectly. They would have seen him as a paragon of virtue in the state of Israel. On the other hand, upon hearing the name tax collector, the Jewish people would have been filled with disdain and disgust. For tax collectors were considered to be traitors in Israel. They had sold out their people to the foreign oppressors who dominated every area of their lives. They thought of the tax collectors as the worst kind of sinners, even in the very same category as a prostitute. So tax collector and sinner went together like ham and eggs. 
To get the impact of this comparison, one might compare an elder in the church today who teaches Sunday school and does all the things that an elder is required to do to that of a local drug dealer who has a meth lab in his house next to an elementary school. So the argument that's being made here in the parable is from the greater to the lesser. The Pharisee was held in high esteem. He was the greater, while the tax collector was held in low esteem. So Jesus' audience would have expected him at this point to begin to extol the Pharisee and condemn the tax collector. Now let's look at the Pharisee's prayer in verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even this tax collector. Right off the bat, we get a sense of this man. He's come to the temple not to worship God, but for others to see him. And for them to know just how great and learned he really is. To this Pharisee, this was just another of the public performances that he would put on for his admirers. He was just acting out a script. He would have put great thought into all that he would do, the things that he would wear, the place that he would stand, and the things that he would say. He wanted to have the greatest impact he possibly could on the watching audience that day. So when he arrives at the inner temple, he walks directly to the front to get as near as he possibly can to the altar and to the laver and to the holy of holies. He wants to be as close as he can be to that place where God dwells. And he stands right in the very front of all the people, much like a proud peacock. His physical stance projects an arrogance that he thought more highly of himself than others. He was filled with human pride as he watched his brilliantly colored robes and prayer shawl flap in the wind atop Mount Zion. This was all part and parcel of the big show. But did you happen to notice the words that began his prayer? You see, he wasn't praying really to God. He was actually praying to himself. The Pharisee as at the temple to be seen and to be heard and to even hear his own lovely voice. The Greek text states that he prayed within himself. In other words, he was delivering a Hamlet-like soliloquy for an audience of one. He prayed these things to himself. So his words never reached the ears of Yahweh, if you will. Now, as an aside, if you're using another text other than the NESV or the King James, another translation, it probably gets it wrong. It might say that the Pharisee was praying by himself rather than to himself. But clearly, the Greek states that this man is praying to himself, about himself, and for himself. Isn't that what a lot of people do in the church today? They offer up prayers which are supposedly spoken to God, but when you listen to them, you believe they're being spoken to the people in the room. You know what I'm talking about? Oftentimes, folks pray prayers as though they need to fill an ignorant God in on the details that he might or somehow missed. This Pharisee prays to remind God that he is not like other men. He's not like other men. He enumerates what he is first not like, He speaks to himself saying, I'm not like an extortioner. 
And I suspect there might have been one in the audience that day. He might even looked at him. A blackmailer, somebody who cheated people out of their money. Then this Pharisee asserts, I'm not unjust. Wow. What a statement to make. What an assertion. Who in this world is not unjust, unfair, prejudiced, or biased towards others in their lives? For example, all of us would acknowledge that if we have children, we're biased towards them. We really can't see their faults at times or even their good points. Yet this man boldly claims that he's not unjust. And he says, I'm not an adulterer again. He's probably looking around at the audience and focusing on one that he knows to be an adulterer. But you see, the problem is this man claims to know the scriptures, and yet he doesn't understand the intent of God. For Jesus clearly defines what an adulterer is when he says that any man who looks upon another woman to lust after, he has committed adultery already. What man has not done that? But he's not done spouting off his silliness and his false claims of righteousness. He looks over the crowd and he spies a man in the very back, a hated man by the Jews. And he raises his voice a few octaves to proclaim, Lord, thank you. I'm not like that man, this man, the tax collector. Looking at the verse, this verse and the next, I'd like you to focus in on the eyes that are here. Five times, five usages of the personal pronoun I by this Pharisee. Five times in 42 words, he uses the pronoun I. This indicates that he has a belief of personal superiority over others. He's not really talking to God. He's talking to himself and telling others how great he is. The repetition of the pronoun I reveals the condition of his heart. He's conceited and self-sufficient. He considers himself better than all other people that are standing near him. He wasn't like this sinner, this tax collector, hated by the people. He's as low as they come. You see, tax collectors sold their nation down the river while enriching themselves. Unlike him, he did all things right, as we shall soon learn. So I can't help but get the feeling He's looking in the mirror and telling himself how smart he is, how good he is, and how people like him. And then he looks up to heaven, and he's telling God how lucky the Lord is to have him on his side. You see, the Pharisee could see the sin of others. He just couldn't see his own sins. He was blind to them. And in verse 12, we find the coup de grace for the Pharisee. He believes he hits a home run when he prays this for the other people listening to him. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes on everything I get. He's busy, very busy, telling God how good he is. Not only does he keep the law perfectly, but he fasts and tithes to boot. Now listen, I have no doubt that all the claims that this Pharisee makes are quite true. He did fast. I don't know if you know it, but the Jews were required to fast on only one day out of the year. They were to fast on the Day of Atonement. 
but because he was a legalist and wanted to go beyond what the law required, he fasted not once a year, but twice a week. All Pharisees fasted on Monday and Thursday, which was to commemorate the day that Moses went up on Mount Sinai and received the law, and on the day that he came down with it. Now, as you know, fasting involves going without food and drink from sunrise to sunset. The first reference to Pharisees' fasting is found in the, in the Mishnah, a rabbinic commentary on the Torah. It's not found in the scriptures, but a commentary. Fasting was only required of Jews once a year, but the Pharisees wanted to exceed the demands of the law so that they could boast before God by doing it twice a week. Not only did he fast, but he tithed of everything he received. He fasted of the tiny little herbs in his garden. Plus, get this, he tithed not only the herbs and the produce from his garden, but he tithed of the weeds that grew in it. Yes, that's right. He gave 10% of the weeds to God. He didn't want to get caught short in any way, shape, or form. This man meticulously, zealously, legalistically tithed 10% of everything that he acquired. But all the while, we know that he ignored his aging parents who had many needs because he needed to tithe to God. Well, just a few words on tithing as an aside in the church today. As you know, the New Testament doesn't say much about the topic of giving. We find some general principles laid down by Paul in the books of Corinthians, and we find some practices in the book of Acts. But what we learn there is that the church came on the Lord's Day and gave regularly to the work of the Lord, and they did so cheerfully. Paul does discuss the proper motives for giving when he requests the Gentile churches in Macedonia to send a one-time offering to the mother church in Jerusalem. We find this recorded in 2 Corinthians. Tithing, though, is a dictate of the law of Moses given to the Jewish people. Tithing is not applicable to the church today. There were actually three types of giving in the Old Testament that people normally ignore. They like tithing, it's a 10%, it's a clean way of giving. But the giving in the Old Testament not only included tithing, but two other requirements for giving. There was the support of the Levitical priests and the poor that was taken up yearly. And there were other offerings that the believer was required to bring to the temple. They are variously called throughout scripture, burnt offerings, praise offerings, and sin offerings, and many others. The, this these kinds of offerings were given on special holidays when the believer would attend the, the temple. There was also the first fruits if you were a farmer where you were required to come and bring grain offerings to God. If you add all of these up, for those who are here and still want to tithe, if you add all of those up, if you've only been giving 10%, you are falling far short of the requirement under the law. Do you want to know what the requirement under the law is? It has been estimated by scholars to be 23 to 27% of your income. So I will expect that our offering will greatly increase from those who love tithing so much next Sunday. The caveat to that, my dear ones, is we are not commanded to tithe. We are commanded to give joyously. And in fact, the word that is there is hilariously in 2 Corinthians 
So I hope that you all come laughing next week as you give lots and lots and lots of more for the work of the ministry of Lacey Chapel and around the world. Don't stop at 23 or 27%. Go beyond that. Go to 50%. If you can do so, joyously. In the book of Acts, in chapter 15, the believers in what's called the Jerusalem Council were told by the apostles as they prayed to God and looked for direction that because of the grace of God, they were not bound by tithing or the law or all the, or all the ceremonial laws that surrounded the temple and the priesthood. That was a system that was done away with. Now we don't live under the law we live under grace. But this man is living under the law. He's living under the law of Moses. He treasures the law of Moses. It is his comfort, his blanket that makes him feel good. He praises himself in the face of God saying that he has given his tithe and that he has fasted twice a week and that really he has no need for God. God just needs to congratulate him for his good works. He gave all the credit to himself. And unto God. He didn't thank God for what he had done in his life, but instead he rattled off a long list of the things that he had done for the Lord. He had no sense, he had no sense of being an unworthy servant or even just fulfilling his duty. He actually believed that he exceeded all the demands that God made upon him. He kept the law perfectly. He didn't need to pray for forgiveness, he'd earned God's forgiveness. Certainly the Lord was fortunate to have someone like him on his side. The Pharisee was not like, this Pharisee was not like other Cretans, like this tax collector. So then, for the, so then the question for the Pharisee wasn't, am I as good as my fellow man? The question was more like, am I as good as God? He trusted in his own righteousness. He defined it for others, and they always came up short. It is as though God's hands were tied since he had earned his righteousness and earned God's favor, making the Lord his debtor. He was so full of himself and his own goodness that he believed there was no need for the favor and the grace of God. But on the other hand, there was the tax collector. He too went up to the temple to pray that day, not to be seen by other people, but to come to God at the appointed time and place of prayer. The Pharisee went to make his appearance, but the tax collector went to make his request. We read in verse 13, but the tax collector, standing some far distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying, God, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. What a contrast. What a contrast between this Pharisee and this tax collector. This tax collector, instead of running up to the front so all people can see him, stands in the back some distance away. This indicates his feeling of unworthiness, that he can't even come close to the presence of God and the Holy of Holies. I believe his physical posture is showing us the gateway to his soul. We read that he was unwilling to lift his eyes towards heaven where Jews believed God abided. 
He then bowed his head in reverence to the Lord and prayed. By the way, at this time, most Jews prayed with their hands raised and looking towards God in heaven, but this man prays with his head down and his eyes looking towards Hades. And he smote his breast with his hands. He smote his breast with his hands, a sign of deep grief and mourning. Again, we're given a clear contrast here between these two men. A legalist who stands before the people in the altar of God on his own merits, while on the other hand, this lousy tax collector stands afar off from God and his people as he can. The legalist came and he looks to God directly in his face in heaven, but the IRS guy, he prays looking down. What we hear from this IRS guy is completely different than what we hear from the self-righteous Pharisee. As he is praying to God, he implores the Lord to be merciful to me, a sinner. This is a prayer of humility, a prayer of dependence, a prayer of desperation. While the proud Pharisee was confident in his place, the tax collector was grieved and concerned over his condition. While the Pharisee spends a great amount of time describing all of his acts of righteousness, the tax collector acknowledges his lack of acts and begs for God's mercy. Mercy. He will need God's grace to escape the judgment that is to come and that he deserves. You see, these two men are using two different standards of measurement. The Pharisee measures himself against other men, but the tax collector is measuring himself against God and his righteousness. It's interesting that he uses the words, be merciful to me. Here he pleads, even as a Jew, that God would give him access to his mercy. He's just a few yards away in the holies of holies, and yet this man is estranged from God the Pharisee filled with pride, while the tax collector is filled with angst. The Pharisee boasts of his good, while the tax collector beats his breast out of grief. He recognizes that there's no merit in and of himself, and he must throw himself on the mercy seat of God. The Apostle John will later write in his first epistle that Jesus was the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's the very same Greek word that's used in this text in this man's mouth, be merciful. It's translated in other places in scripture as mercy seat, as the place of atonement, as propitiation. This verb carries the idea of expiation or appropriation of sin. It's the idea of making reconciliation through a sacrifice. Now this is very important. For the tax collector is praying that God, through his mercy, will cover his sins and that the divine wrath will be abated against him. This implies that there's an offering or a sacrifice that's being made for the wrath of God to be abated by this offender. Where are they standing? At the place where sacrifices are made. They are gathered in the public area where Jews would bring their lambs to be slaughtered for their sins. It's clear that these two Jewish men described here are completely and utterly different in every way, shape, and form. We see a contrast of these two men now as they exit the temple. One is a Pharisee who thinks he's right with God based on the things he's done, and the other is a tax collector who knows he is hopeless before a holy God. 
In verse 14, Jesus shares the shocking conclusion for his Jewish audience. Unfortunately, we're no longer shocked by this because we're so familiar with it. We've heard it over and over again, but the listeners of Jesus would have heard this time, this for the first time, and it would have been scandalous to them. The Lord Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. Jesus, the Son of God, the Redeemer of mankind, said this awful, ungodly tax collector was justified. What? What? What did he say? The tax collector is accepted by God? Is that what he said? He's justified? Yes. He's been made clean. He's prepared for worship at the temple. His sins are forgiven. And yet the one who was confident in his own works, the one who has fulfilled his religious duty and gone beyond all that is required, the Lord Jesus states that he has left carrying his personal sin and guilt with him. The Pharisee has been rejected by God. As I pointed out last week, whenever you see the phrase, I tell you at the beginning of a sentence, this is Jesus affirming that he has the right to tell what is true and that you can take it to the bank. I tell you the truth. This man went home justified rather than the other. Jesus affirms that he knows the heart and the mind of God. I tell you. And so the tax collector was justified. He was declared righteous. A legal concept which means he was not sentenced, condemned, or found guilty. Rather, the judge of all of humankind has declared him to be not guilty, not because of what he has done, but because of the sacrifice that has been made. This is a pronouncement of being made free and clear, of being declared righteous, while all the evidence that's been gained, a mountain of evidence that points to his guilt, the evidence was destroyed and covered by the blood of the Lamb. Now, there's no record of it, no witnesses to this man's sin any longer. God doesn't keep a record of your wrongs when you've trusted in his Son. Instead, he credits the righteousness of Christ to this man's account and to your account when you trust in him. All of the mercy of God is applied to our lives, and all of our merit means nothing. All of our good works means nothing. This aptly describes the position of every believer who trusts in God's mercy and grace. We are the recipient of a free gift, the righteousness of Christ. Paul will later write about this in Romans chapter 4 and verse 5 when he talks about justification by faith, saying, but to the one who does not work, get that, the one who doesn't work, but believes in him, is justified. He justifies the ungodly and his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, the Pharisee's mistake was believing that he was a good and moral man and that that would be more than enough for God to receive him. When in fact he was lost, estranged 
from God and his promises, for he trusted in himself rather than in God's provision. That's why Jesus quotes here in this last portion of verse 14 from the book of Isaiah when he says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. You see, to humble yourself is not a meritorious act, but it is a response, a recognition of one's total lack of worth before God. Such humility is equivalent to the phrase found in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that we are to be poor in spirit. The fundamental indispensable preparation for the reception of God's grace and the appearing, his appearing, bringing salvation, is humility. Humility is the fertile ground in which the gospel seed can be planted, can grow, and can flourish. So it is the tax collector humbled himself before God and he received justification. The Lord declared him not guilty and granted him his righteousness. But let me say this, it was not because of the tax collector's humility. I say to you, no way, may it never be. May Ganetto... We find a biblical principle here that states that for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a restatement of a well-known proverb that's found, again, in the book of Luke, chapter 14, and verse 11. As the Pharisee attempted to justify himself before God, he rejected the possibility of receiving God's gift of justification through faith. How could he? He didn't need it. He wasn't seeking it. That means a right standing before God is not based on man's moral perfection. It's not based on our good character or the things we do. There are no good people. There are no good guys. We're all sinners, bankrupt and alienated from God. The example of the Pharisee makes it clear that he believed he possessed a greater moral character than the tax collector. He had great self-esteem. He had great self-esteem. And he had no need for God. He wasn't a thief, an evildoer, or an adulterer. Truth is, most of us would have considered him to be a nice guy and a great neighbor to have living next door to us. He kept the law perfectly, and he had great social standing in the society. The tax collector didn't. And yet he was the one whom the Lord proclaimed justified, the tax collector. Shocking! This reveals that the Pauline teaching on justification by faith was not an anomaly that is hidden in the epistles, but that it's found right here in Jesus' teaching, that justification is embedded in the Lord's teaching. It's rooted in the teaching of Jesus. It is humility that prepares us to receive the free gift. Justification. Humility always precedes justification. That means we should never offer up prayers that profess our great virtues, the things that we have done. But we should always be humble. And instead, our prayer should be a recognition of our sin and unworthiness. So then, how do we apply this to our lives today? 
First, keep in mind that this is a parable, and parables taught one basic point. The point being here is not about prayer. It's not about prayer. The point here is about justification by faith. And man is justified. When he comes to the place, he humbly knows that he has no chance other than throwing himself on the mercy of God. We are sinful creatures standing in need of grace and mercy. And God has promised to give it to those who humbly ask for it. The fact that both this Pharisee and the tax collector went to the temple and pray, and only one came away justified shows us that religiosity is no guarantee of true spirituality. On the other hand, the Pharisee shows and demonstrates for us that true righteousness is not the result of doing. On the other hand, the tax collector teaches us once again that justification is an act of God and not of man. It is God who extends his mercy and grace to the sinner who has only had a change of mind about himself and about God. Then the Lord can declare us justified legally. No one enters into the presence of God on their own self-worth or works. Apart from Christ, we have no merit. But with Christ, we receive his righteousness and are clothed in it. It's only by grace, it is only by grace that we have access to him. For all of humankind stands guilty before a holy God, before the justice of our Savior, Pharisee, tax collector, pastor, homemaker alike. We are all guilty. The difference between these two men, the contrast is not that one's morally good and that one is morally bad. The difference is that one knew he was a sinner and the other thought he didn't need to be forgiven. But listen to me now. To receive the free gift, one must humble oneself. But justification is not simply acknowledging yourself as a sinner. It's become commonplace for people to say, well, no one's perfect. That includes me. But so often, that's where it ends. But there must be a recognition that one is totally ungodly estranged, alienated from a a holy God, and hopeless, hopeless. And then we come humbly and submit to him and receive the gospel. My question is, have you done so? Are you a Pharisee or are you a tax collector? Are you trying to gain standing before God by your righteous acts or are you acknowledging your lack of hope and utter sinfulness. Trust, receive, accept, believe. That is the call of God on our lives. Let us pray. Father God, we are so grateful for the Lord Jesus' teaching that have been laid down for us in this precious book. Help us, Father, to understand it rightly Help us, Father, to understand ourselves, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Lord, we don't need good self-esteem. We need accurate self-esteem. 
We need to understand that we are terrible sinners and that we need your grace and mercy and that you clothe us with your righteousness. We don't improve, but we're transformed. Help us, Lord, to understand these truths so that we might better serve you, love you, and live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.